0: I'm Chris. I'm pastor and elder here at Resonate. I think uh, the previous service, everyone was just so excited to hear this topic. And so we were packed in here. Um, and so, uh, but here's, here's round two and we'll see how this goes. Uh, but I will open with this. Living easy, loving free. Seize a ticket on a one-way ride. Asking nothing, leave me be. Taking everything in my stride. Don't need reason, don't need rhyme. Ain't nothing that I'd rather do. Going down party time. My friends are going to be there too. I'm on a... Uh, I'm impressed. I'm impressed you actually understood what he was actually saying. Most of the time, I'm like, that's all I understand out of ACDC is that. But um, I sing along, and I never know the words. But uh, today, uh, if you do not know, um, we have been walking through the book of Matthew uh, as a church, uh, and we've... um, kind of encountered and wrestled with a, a topic that's, that comes up actually more in the book of Matthew than any other book, um, and that is the, the word hell and what are our thoughts on it? What is the theology of hell? What is true about it? What do we know? What do we not know? What ways are maybe some of our theology shaped by other things? And um, it's, it's uh, something that we decided to, to kind of take a pause this week and just focus on. Uh, so instead of kind of continuing through Matthew and barely touching on it, but to take a Sunday where we uh, dive in uh, much deeper. And so uh, if you weren't expecting that, sorry, it's what it's going to be. Uh, it's going to be kind of heady. It's going to be kind of academic as we work through some of the texts we need to work through today. Um, and, and so, uh, but uh, hear me, as with many things... Um, at this church, and if you were here in the fall, you'll understand this because we tackled a bunch of more controversial things, but with many things at this church, there's wonderful room to disagree. Uh, I think amongst the fellowship, even amongst the elders of this church, that at some point on this topic, you can affirm like the the foremost foundational creeds of the church, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Creed of Chalcedon, and the Athanasian Creed four major, major creeds of the church through the first 500 years. You can affirm all four and have all sorts of views on hell. And and so uh, it was not considered much of an essential doctrine that you had to plant your flag in a very clear spot for a long time. Uh, You can affirm the partnership covenant of this church. You can even affirm the elder statement of faith at this church and yet hold to differing views. Even going to some of the most conservative churches I know and looking at some of their statements, you can hold differing views on this particular topic that we talk about today. My desire today is not to add or subtract from God's word. Uh, Sometimes I'll be subtracting maybe from some tradition or things we've heard, uh, but my hope is also not go beyond the bounds of what God's word says. So if things are left open-ended, things are left open-ended. I also want to recognize that sometimes when we tackle topics like this, uh, like we did in the last fall, that uh, sometimes the outcome can be a bit, um, I mean, some of you just might disagree with me. That's totally fine. But some of you, I might end up sort of disoriented or disillusioned. It's like, I never, never heard that about this before. I really thought this my whole life. And now I'm seeing it particularly different and it feels disorienting. And sometimes that process, hear me, is just discipleship. Like sometimes it's taking traditions and things we've heard that may or may not align with parts of scripture and going, oh. Huh maybe that wasn't true or maybe that was true or whatever it may be for you. And so I also want to be open to that. And, and I really want to be open uh, or I really want to give some caution to discern the spirits, um, uh, to make sure that what we want to hear, that we're, we're looking for what is true versus what we want to believe to be true. Um, we all naturally default to positions of what we prefer or want to be true, but our, our goal is still to submit ourselves under what is true of scripture Um, Even if we don't agree with it. And so I want to give a roadmap to where we're going this morning and then I'll pray. Uh, We'll we'll open, we'll spend some time talking about hell, the word hell, how it gets translated in the New Testament and the verses that give us some picture of it. After that, uh, we'll tackle sort of the other collection of concepts related to it. uh, Words such as wrath or fire or judgment and eternal punishment, those kind of verbiage. And then um, we'll hit on, as we go, I would argue three, there's a bunch of views, there's probably seven or eight. Uh, I will highlight three major views that people hold around this subject. Um, I'm not going to go into definitions yet, but the first one is eternal conscious torment. Uh, This is what's considered the majority view uh, if you're in the Western church. Uh, It is what most describe and think of as hell, which is that people are sent to hell who don't believe in Jesus and they are conscious for forever time experiencing punishment and pain and and all the effects of that. Uh, And then there's uh, annihilationism or uh, what is sometimes called conditional immortality, which I'll define as we go. And then um, what is hopeful inclusivism or sometimes the early church talked about it as total redemption, uh, which is another one. And as we conclude the last step of this process, I want us to realize why this conversation matters. Why why does having certain perspectives or even a, a certain position or not position on hell matter? There are wonderful questions on Slack this week. Normally, uh, if you're visiting with us, sometimes we have like opening questions and and stuff like that. Uh, I wanted to field all those a little bit digitally this week. Um, there are so many topics that we're not going to cover. I, I don't have time. Like I already went crazy long in the first service, uh, and so there's and I may go back on Slack and I'll answer a few of them. We'll see. Um, there are definitely some I'm going to tackle today, and um, and so but I want to ask why. Why does this matter? Which was one of the questions asked. How does this, how does this, how do our views shape or influence these aspects of our lives? And so let's start uh, with prayer and then we'll dive uh, into hell, which sounds funny. Um, God, uh, I am uh, thankful for this morning and um, a chance to unpack your word. God, that we would um, allow your spirit to just help us see what you want us to see. Not what we want to see, but just to see truth and God, where things are clear, let them be clear, where things are open-ended, or you haven't told us the whole story or clarified things, God, let's be comfortable with that too. God, we just want to know your truth and to know how that now causes us to live what you've called us into. I pray all this in your name. Amen. So let's start at page one, uh, which is funny because we won't encounter the word hell until the New Testament. Uh, so, uh, two thirds of the Bible just doesn't talk a lot about it. Uh, when you go through the old Testament, uh, you encounter continuously a concept called Sheol. Uh, it's a word, uh, even sometimes in our English translations, they transliterate it and just write Sheol. Uh, the difficulty highlighted by most commentators, conservative to liberal, is that Sheol has all sorts of varied descriptions throughout the old Testament. And the one thing that seems to be clear is that it's a place where everyone goes. If you're righteous, if you're unrighteous, you even find Jacob being like, I long to be in Sheol. Like you have sort of language of, of this, that it's sort of like the place where all dead people end up is Sheol. We have a, a comparable term in the New Testament and we'll get there in a moment, but um, that's, that's it, right? Like, the Old Testament will have some other language that it'll use. Uh, we find, like, the end of the book of Isaiah. We find a little bit in Jeremiah. Some of these images. Some of these images around um, destruction. And the difficulty is uh, they're usually prophetic and poetic. And they pick up on words that are picked up on earlier in their books. So Isaiah picks up on... Um, the valley of Gehenna, basically, uh, and uh, the destruction of this army that happened and, and stuff like that. It picks it up again to talk about sort of some future things, but it also talks about the restoration of Levites and other stuff in, as part of this moment. And so it's still a question of like, all right, like, how much of that is true, literal things in the future? How much of that is super figurative in language? How much of that is poetic in language? Um, and, uh, and we're left with just not a lot of verses that really deal with much. Some of those verses will get picked up in the New Testament, so we'll deal with them when they do. But the Old Testament just leaves us with this kind of vague understanding of exactly what the afterlife is like. Hence why Jesus is dealing with people that disagree about whether there's a resurrection and all this kind of stuff, because the Old Testament just leads us a little bit open-handed of exactly what happens when we die there's plenty of times where it talks about God's judgment. Almost all those in the Old Testament are actually like literal judgments. It's like the, the, the city being destroyed or an invading army, all this kind of stuff. Locust, all, all the sort of nature of things. And so um, to make much statements based upon the Old Testament, is just really, really hard to do. Cool? Let's go to the New Testament, which is where we start getting all the language for it. So uh, the first word we encounter, if we're starting with the book of Matthew, like we did, uh, is this word Gehenna. Uh, we've talked about this uh, already a little bit. It's used 12 times throughout all the old or all the new Testament one time in James. And then basically within like four different spots in the, in the gospel of Matthew. Uh, so it's used like three times, but it's like just one teaching. He just repeats it. So there's four teachings that Jesus does it in the book of Matthew. And then Luke and Mark pick up each one of those stories, uh, from the book of Matthew or vice versa, depending on the dating of the books. But, um, that they have, So it's really just four moments that are taught from Jesus and then once out of the book of James. And so we've covered two of those four already. Uh, Matthew 5 is the first time it really occurs. Uh, it occurs sort of in this moment of warning. Uh, so it, Jesus will say things like, if your hand causes you to sin or your eye causes you to sin, uh, throw it away, which is imagery of what? what is what's just throwing things away. You throw things into trash, yeah. For it's better for you to lose one of your members and your whole body go into Gehenna, which uh, we unpacked again last week. And Gehenna is literally a, a, the name of a place. Uh, it is the Valley of Haman. um, It is a place on the outskirts of Jerusalem. It has a sordid history. This is where we get back into the Old Testament. Uh, there had been child sacrifices. There had been all this kind of stuff that was awful in pre-Israel history and Israel history. And uh, became sort of this identification of the like the condemned place, the, the link. and not only that, but as we covered, and I know people will argue about this all the time, but valleys on their way out of cities are, are do what yeah, they become the sewage system of the cities, they become the trash heap of the cities if you 're down in the valley. All the water rushes through that. And so all your sewage, all your stuff just ends up there. And so it becomes a waste. It becomes a refuge, a refuse, a wasteland. And so it's not usable. Most valleys are not very usable. Um, and so uh, you end up with that uh, as part of the, this imagery. And so it's the question constantly of um, how much is Jesus talking about this place metaphorically? How much is he warning a future Pharisee and leadership and country that they're going to end up, just like the book of Jeremiah, back in a destroyed state, which they do within a lifetime of a fair amount of characters in the story. And so those are important questions. Will will they end up being this destroyed wasteland? Will sin cause them to their own destruction? Uh, Matthew 18 picks up on this again, but Matthew 18 is essentially quoting Matthew 5 again about throwing your eye out if it causes you to sin. And then Matthew 23 becomes Jesus' final collection of woes to the Pharisees. So he's wrapping up his ministry. The Pharisees are there and he pronounces all these woes and it's like this perfect number and he picks up on some wonderful things. I can't wait to get there. But um, as part of that, he's like, look, like your condemnation, like what, what is the outcome of this is Gehenna. Like, you hope you know that. And once again, it's a question. Is that he's using that metaphorically? Is he using that to condemn the leadership of Israel? That really will become a wasteland when Rome decides to, to just destroy things just as much as Babylon did for Jeremiah. It's a question. And so to to clearly put a a stake in, clearly this is about judgment and the afterlife and where we all go. And it's eternal fire for us until we burn forever. Like, is that the state? And it's hard. The gospels just don't clarify all that for us. We're kind of left with all right, you know, I can see where that could be metaphor, but it could be literalism. Um, I'm not sure. And then we get James, who randomly uses it. It's the only letter that uses it. He says this, and the tongue is a fire. So James is talking about all these ways to live like a good, righteous life. And he talks about the tongue and our use of words. So says, the tongue is a fire, the world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set amongst our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by Gehenna. So James is using the metaphor of fire and speaking of the tongue being like, look, the tongue's like this, and it, it can set fire to all of it. Like the tongue is that powerful that it's like a small flame that starts a fire that can destroy your, your whole body. Now, is James using that saying like, it's, it's setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by the place where people go for eternal destruction and punishment after the judgment day. Or is he saying, set on fire the course of life instead on fire like the, the place that we know that is always burning because that's what refuse places do and whatever you throw in there it gets destroyed in its totality. Like if you throw anything into the garbage heap that's always burning, it will burn. Instead on fire by the destructive fires of this place that we all know. And, and so is that what's happening instead? And once again, I don't know. I don't know how literalist we should think about James and the afterlife versus this destructive fire condemned place. And so that's what we got. That's what we got for hell. Cool? Invite the band back up and we'll be done. Um, yeah, We have really four instances where Jesus uses the word uh, and, and James uses the word. Uh, one is about warning about body parts and throwing them into the refuse before all of us ends, ends up in the place of the refuse and condemned place. Uh, the other one about what um, we covered last week, about the one who can destroy both body and soul, um, which we covered a little bit more in depth last week. Uh, Matthew 23, uh, which is a warning to the Pharisees about their unjust practices, uh, that it could lead to Gehenna. And then lastly, that James one, uh, about the warning of the tongue, though small can corrupt the whole body. That's it. That's hell in the New Testament, right? Um, and there's more. And so there's other words that we also sometimes translate with hell, but they're completely different words. Um, And so uh, we encounter words like Hades. Uh, And so sometimes it gets translated depending on your translation. I actually think the ESV most of the time actually translates it as Hades nowadays. Um, But different translators have, the King James at one point decided to translate all these things as hell, and we've kind of gotten stuck and absorbed some of that. Um, But Hades is a whole different word. Uh, it's often similar to Sheol, it's actually how when the Greek translators translated the word Sheol into Greek, uh, they went with Hades. Um, and from what we could tell just from Scripture, it's the place where the dead go. It's the place where all dead things go. Uh, it's almost similar to how the Greeks used it, which is probably why the New Testament writers did. It's like, look, we, we know all dead people go to the place of the dead, like Hades. It's the dominion of death. Um, We'll unpack uh, Luke 16 in a second, which I know Rhonda asked me about. Um, but uh, the the one other place where like Hades really gets used is um, is at some point and it's a wonderful story, Matthew. I can't wait for this one either. He goes up to Caesarea Philippi, it's like way out of the way on the north side of Israel. And it's like the pagan world. Like there's a whole temple there. You can still go visit to this day with all these temple structures, all this Greek paganism, tons of it. And it's like really sorted what happened there. But one of the things that's there is literally called the Gates of Hades. And so Jesus goes there talks to his disciples and ultimately says, like, the Gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. And so you have a literal place there and Jesus is using this language and I think he's meaning certain things, but I don't think it's a comment about the afterlife per se and stuff like that. So um, that doesn't really clarify a lot for us on... Or what is, the, what is the afterlife that Jesus talks about? Then we get Luke 16. Um, as I said, Rhonda, I think, asked about sort of the Lazarus story. Uh, and uh, it's, it's an important one. It's, it's Hades that actually has some imagery about the afterlife. The other ones seem vague about death. This one has some imagery for us to tackle. Now, what are some of the major themes out of Luke acts as a, as a story? Some of y'all that did the Luke study, what are like... What well, was a big thing that Luke liked to talk about? Cool. All right. I think there's, I think there's two things that have come out of out of Luke that are like major focuses for Luke. One, Luke talks a lot. Luke makes central those who are constantly outsiders. As much as Matthew does, Luke does it even more. The poor, the marginalized, the widows, like Mary's prayer, his her Magnificat, her opening song. Is the poor will be brought down and or the the rich and powerful will be brought down and the poor will be raised up. And Luke's gospel will tell a lot of those kind of stories throughout. And not only that, but Luke is writing to a Gentile. And I think one of the main points of the book is also to address how did the God of Israel become the Greek God? Like us as Gentiles who are like now growing in this faith. There's all sorts of converts that are starting to happen. How did the God of Israel become the Gentile God? And so he's asking, I think Luke is focused on those questions. And now I think those are the questions that the story is actually addressing. So let's look. The audience of Luke 16, starting in verse 14, it says it's for the Pharisees. This so teaching is for the Pharisees to hear, who are the lovers of money, they heard all these things and they ridiculed him and then he said to them and jesus started teaching at verse 19, uh, by starting at verse 14 but he, he goes into by verse 19 so this is the story there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores and the poor man died and was carried by the angel to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip his finger at the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, and now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. He said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Seems like a random detail to include. So that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Now, who are the characters of the story? Lazarus, rich man, and somebody else shows up. Abraham, right? So we get those, those various characters. Cool. Uh, how many brothers does this guy have? Okay, cool. All right. So it's an important note, and I wish translators would do this because I think it would bring out the story so much more. Lazarus is a Greek word name for for a Hebrew name, which is Eliezer. Okay. Where have we encountered a story of Abraham and Eliezer? Who knows their Old Testament Abraham stories? Who's Eliezer? What was that? Yes. So he's this man who's not part of Abraham's family, per se. He's not part of the progeny of Abraham. He's an outsider. He's a Gentile. And yet he was a servant in Abraham's house and was going to inherit all that Abraham had until Abraham had Isaac, his own biological son. And then all the inheritance goes from Eliezer to Isaac. So all of God's promises to to, to bless Abraham, to be a blessing to all nations, ends up in this line and not in the line of Eliezer. Cool, great, Lazarus. All right, who do we know in the Old Testament? This is a wild trivia question who has five brothers. Where do we know where there's a family of like six brothers? There may be more brothers, but biologically there's at least six brothers. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's not Joseph's family, but yes, yes, absolutely. Um, There's there's various sons all born to various women. And so there's a collection of of six of them. There's at least one with five brothers. And one of those is Judah. Now, at this point in Israel's history, they are known at least in the south, if you weren't Galilean in the north, you are the Judeans. And constantly throughout scripture, it's a bit of a question of whether to translate as Jews or whether to translate as Judeans, like the southern folks in, um, they're not southern culturally, but southern folks in Israel, or whether it's the leadership of Israel, uh, which often, if you get into the book of Acts, Judeans often use around the leadership, the, the, the priesthood and stuff like that. Translators have a field day with when to translate and why, but you have this identification of like, most of a lot of Israel at this point is identified as, as the, the collection of Judah. It's one of the only tribes that's still identified up to that day. Uh, you have a bunch of tribes that have been destroyed so many times from the north that Judah is really all that's left. And, and so you have these details and they all kind of play out because it's like, okay, like you have Eliezer, you have Abraham, which becomes a random detail. Why Abraham? And then you have this, like, oh, my brothers and stuff like that. You have all these details that feel odd because, like, it's an odd story. It's nowhere else in Scripture do you have, like, the story of death. And so to take it very literally as this is what happens in the afterlife, it's funky because they're also, like, talking to each other from, from heaven and hell. They're doing all sorts of weird things, right? And so perhaps, perhaps what Jesus is after is very much what Luke decides to tell us. Because Luke has an agenda to tell the story of the people. And there were Judeans. There was this man with five brothers. The Judean people who have been wonderfully blessed. They have everything they need, they've been blessed by God to be a blessing. And, And the Gentiles even were willing to have the crumbs from the table, which becomes another wonderful story in Jesus' teaching. Even the crumbs of the table. And they didn't do it. They didn't offer anything to the surrounding people. And now the time has come for the great reversal. And Eliezer, who never got that inheritance, is now going to receive the inheritance that he never got. The blessing of God is gonna be poured out onto the Gentile people. Now they would become, God would become their God and they would become God's people, the promise to Abraham. And the Judeans are going to experience death or destruction of being left out of the family in some way. Now the word here for torment is at times a questionable translation choice. We're going to deal with a few of those today. I know it sounds really convenient, but it's, it's these words that become so influential. Uh, the word torment is perhaps more, more easily tr- translated as, as tested or testing. It's the word for a touchstone, and a touchstone is used to put upon certain materials to find out what, what kind of materials they are made out of. You test the purity of things with a touchstone. That's what it's for. And so whatever the rich man is going through, whatever the Judeans possibly are going through is connected to this image of like a purity test, a refinement. There's something to be had that they're going to suffer in some ways and it's going to be a test of who they really are. Can they cross that chasm? Can they come to the place where the Gentiles, where, where God is with his people now? And the odd punchline of the story, I would argue, is who can cross the great chasm? And the answer is Jesus. Jesus is the one who can cross that great chasm, but that's beside the point. And so... I take the story incredibly metaphoric of the people of God. I think that's what Jesus is doing. I think that's why some of these details are in there. I just don't take it as, here's what literally happens when you die. Here's a literal Lazarus. Here's this literal rich man. And Jesus is going, and here's the theology of the afterlife. Uh, I just don't see it. Uh, I think he's much more metaphoric of what he's talking about in this story. So, you could disagree, but that's just how I read it. Most other references to Hades come packaged with the word death. Uh, they're particularly prevalent at the end of Revelation where God destroys death and Hades. It's so death and the dominion of death. He deals with death. The last word we get is Tartarus. Uh, this occurs one time in the New Testament. It's in 2 Peter 2 which all of us read Second Peter all the time. Uh, but it's a word borrowed from uh, Greek mythology, uh, as much as Hades was slightly borrowed uh, from Greek mythology as well. Um, it's the mythology of where Titans go to be like, imprisoned before their judgment. And so when Titans act not in accordance to the gods, it's where they go. Second Peter 2 uses it almost the same way. Uh, he uses it related to angels, rebellious angels, that they ultimately will be there until they're finally punished in the end. Cool not about humans, not used about humans, it's its own word, and I think it's picking up on pictures of mythology to tell the story of what's going to happen to the, 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 the rulers and principalities outside of this. what we understand the world, the evil that actually exists that we can't see, angels, Satan, all that kind of stuff. It's for that. It's for that world. Cool? So. Does that give us a complex theology of what happens to souls when they die? Are they tormented forever in this hell place with a red prince of demons and a pitchfork, which is, hear me, that image is entirely out of the book of Dante and not about scripture, uh, or or Dante's Inferno. Um, Are they totally destroyed? Is everyone brought back from the dead and restored? There's not a lot we can say, just doing a word study on the book, on the word hell, okay? That's it, we've covered all the hell words and all the things that get translated as hell. King James eventually translated all these things as hell. It's what we inherit and they are different things and it's important to highlight those differences. So, but we got a bunch of other words, right? Uh, John will use terms like perishing, death, condemnation or judgment. Paul speaks of wrath, everlasting destruction. Other letters use raging fire, destruction, eternal fire, blackest darkness. The book of Revelation uses things like lake of fire, burning sulfur. These are just a few concepts. I'll, I'll cover a few of them. I'm not covering any of them in depth because we ain't got that kind of time. The first is eternal punishment. Now, there's a few times this phrase is used. Uh, One of the most common, I think, that's talked about, and we will certainly address in Matthew 25, um, is Jesus is talking sort of about, sort of the the end, the culmination of time when God wraps up the, the story in some ways, and that there'll be goats, and there'll be sheep. And the sheep are the ones who actually cared about those who were uncared for. Like, did you give water to those who were thirsty? Did you give clothes to those who need a clothes? Did you visit the sick? Did you go to the prisons? It's completely that. It's not, hey, did you believe in Jesus? That's just not the phrasing of Matthew 25. It's, did you care about justice issues or not? And the the sheep do and the goats don't. That's how the story works. It's it's not the most complicated metaphor that's used in Scripture. And then we get a wrap-up of that teaching, Verse 44, then they also will answer, so these are the, the goats in the story, answer saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison, all, all the justice issues, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do to one of the least of these, you did not do to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And it's like, case closed, Chris, we're done, right? Um, The difficulty, once again, is just language and translations. And I know it feels really easy to go, hey, all the words that we think are this are actually probably not, but it just so happens that we tend to skew our words quite a bit in this area. So the word Colossum uh, that we translate as punishment, one of the primary ways that it it seems to work throughout ancient literature is constantly this idea of correction. Even if you pull up Strong's Concordance, the first thing it says, "This, this word's correction. It's like, but we translate it somehow as punishment. And so it's a bit of a rare word. It only really exists twice in the Testament, but it, it, it starts to change maybe how we interpret this text, right? If it's correction and not punishment, then what's the correction with what in mind? Towards, towards what end? If the goats are corrected in the end, what do, what do we mean by that? And then we get the other word, uh, aionion, which is also a wonderful word. Uh, this is uh, a word without an English pair. Uh, so there are some words like donkey that we have an English word for in a Greek word and it's very clear. They're, they're two very distinct things. But then we get concepts that don't always just have a one-to-one. And so this is one of those words. And we translate it as eternal, but it's problematic for many, many reasons. Um, sometimes, uh, depending on where you're at in New Testament, it'll be translated as age. Uh, so, um, And sometimes it's ages of ages, um, or of the age if it's an adjective, uh, it's characterized by a specific quality. Uh, William Barclay, a great Reformed the- uh, commentator, talks at length about this word. He says, simply to use the word aionias, or aionion, when it refers to blessing and punishment to mean lasting forever is to oversimplify and indeed to misunderstand it completely altogether. It means far more than that, and it goes on uh, in the commentary. It's, a, uh, it's about a new age that is distinct from the current age in, in its kind and quality, but not in temporalness. It's not about a time; it's about a quality uh, or, or kind of of age. And like we end up using words that are temporal, but it was not temporal in concept. So this should start changing a little bit of how we think about things. Is there a new state of correction that the goats are getting entered into? Is it endless? Is it not? Is it a temporary state? We're just kind of stuck. We're stuck with words that we struggle to define. And then as theologians come along and translate, we're like, well, we believe in a con- eternal conscious torment, so we translate it a certain way. But that's what we're stuck with. And then another verse, 2 Thessalonians 1. Paul's, encouraging, um, Paul's writing to the church, encouraging a bunch of people who are persecuted, suffering for their faith, and, he, and he's writing these things. To them, and and let me say, I said this the last service. When it comes to the topic of hell, punishment, all this kind of stuff, uh, particularly in the the letters, it is used for two reasons. Just about exclusively, I'm trying to think of an exception. It is used pastorally for people who are suffering injustice. So you have a whole lot of people who believe in Jesus and yet are being persecuted. Nothing's working out. There are all sorts of suffering that they're experiencing, and, and Jesus or Paul or Peter come along and be like, "Look, like I need you to know that there's still judgment coming. That all this injustice is not unseen. All this injustice is not a, 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 unaddressed. That there is a time when all of this will come t- to be dealt with." And so it's very pastoral. The other time, time is is quite corrective. So it's often um, used if people are uh, the church is really struggling with a certain kind of sin, certain kind of uh, patterns that are more like the world than like the pattern of, of the kingdom. And, and Paul will use it, and Peter will use it that way too, being like, look, like you're, you're dabbling in the world of, of judgment and destruction and perishing. Like You need to know that. And so it tends to be in those two major categories. And here it's very pastoral. So Paul's writing a church suffering is suffering, and talking about the persecutors, he says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day, this future day, to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at amongst all who believe because our testimony to you was believed. Now, once again, we get to words that are just complicated. I wish they weren't, but they are. I already covered eternal, which we get again in this thing, this eternal destruction. But now the word destruction, olethros, uh, is actually more connected to the concept of being lost than to be destroyed. Uh, The same language is used in Luke 15 when... um, it talks about the, the prodigal son and, and the father. The father says about the son, he was lost, but now he's found. But we don't say he was destroyed, but now he's found, he was lost. And so it, it's a different word. It's a different image that's to be played at here. And not only that, but we get language around away from the presence of the Lord. So they were, they were lost. They were, they were, as much as I would lose my keys, and was away from my presence, they were lost from the Lord so they're experiencing this age of, of lostness, of separation, could be the language that is used here. But what about punishment? Because we do get the word punishment. And guess what, punishment does mean punishment. Great, I, I love when the words actually mean that. Now, there's all sorts of images around punishment in the New Testament. It's language around fire and destruction and wrath and judgment, we get some of this language. So let's start with fire, because it's probably the most common. Is fire a good thing or a bad thing? All right, Good. Great. We're smart. Good. First service. Not so much smart. Um, I'm just kidding. I think they got it too. And by, by the way, I know some of you, this like this kind of sermon is like a drudge. Um, but it's also like, man, our, our church is like the smartest church. I think we were voted smartest church in Georgia. So, because I think you guys are willing to like just sit in this stuff and let's wrestle through it and work through it and do this kind of stuff. So. Thank you, but if this is not your service, don't worry. Next week we'll go back to Matthew, be you normal. Know. But fire, um, good thing and a bad thing. I agree, and Scripture will actually play on that quite a bit of the fire imagery and sometimes sort of the dualism of whether it's good or whether it's bad. Uh, Jesus uses the fire imagery a lot, particularly in the parables. So we, will, we are about to enter a section of Matthew where Jesus teaches a bunch of parables. And he, and he does it, um, and he talks about these weeds versus the, 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 the harvest or... Um in the story we just covered, that for the crowd who doesn't care about the marginalized, talks about chaff. some point, says the whole earth is burnt up in fire. Uh, there's disconnected branches that get burnt into fire. Um, you get all of this, often related to how we treat others. Um, and so you have some of this imagery. Or Mark 9, uh, it'll say, uh, um, at some point it'll say, everyone will be salted with fire. So uh, it covers everyone. And, and, and yet the very next line is, and salt is good. And so it's like, okay, okay. it feels like whiplash, um, but you have all this imagery and there's plenty of sort of imagery. Now hear me, at some point I'll, I'll go into, I think the three different positions, but there's constant language in the New Testament around sort of a, a purging of earth that has to happen. That at some point there's a future day, not, not, not exactly now, but a future day when God's judgment will come to earth where he's going to wrap up the story And there is sin, there is death still, there is the pollution that sin has caused and the mess of everything that God does need to deal with. And some of the language that is involved in that is actually like a revealing. This is when everything is actually brought to light. When all the, like, because we are, even our secular, like if you, like my secular friends believe this kind of stuff. It's like, it's like people that got away with like molestation, like that needs to be dealt with. Like, we all crave everything coming to light and ju- We just don't want it for ourselves, but we want everything else to come to light and to be judged and for what is right and good and true to happen. It's a collective longing of the human heart. We do desire justice, just not when it is justice related to ourselves. And so there's language around God revealing everything and purifying the earth and he does it with fire he does it with water um, there's, there's various other images, but those are the two big ones now the first question we have to ask is okay there is the, there is this sort of judgment to come this sort of purging of everything evil now is that forever punishing the audience who receives it whether that's you me whether that's everyone whether that's just the unrighteous well i mean If we read those verses, if we want to read those verses that way, and that's the majority position through the history of the church, right? Eternal conscious torment. Lasts forever. There's the righteous and the unrighteous. The righteous are good plants and don't experience any of this. The unrighteous experience the fire and they get it forever where they'll burn forever. Okay. Historic position, it's fine. If you want to be really literalistic on some of these verses, that is the position of some of these verses. But is that what it's saying all the time? Because we also have the word "destroying," and sometimes that's complicated. Because uh, this this destroying word, Apalea really means destroying, like destroy to not be around anymore. And so, if you have a fire that's, that is constantly going, because you might have fires that are constantly, and, and so, and you're a farmer and you're throwing stuff in there. And you don't know the physics of those things turning into a bunch of like various other carbon molecules and floating up into the air. All you see is, hey, I had this big branch and now there's nothing there anymore over time. And so this idea of big things being destroyed in fire carries with it this, the concept that things are thrown into it and cease to be, right? That's just what apolia can mean, this total annihilation, this destroying of things. And so there's this idea of the fires can be described, yes, as eternal, but the things thrown into the fires are destroyed. They're gone. And so this is where we get um, a theology of annihilation because we have a lot of these word pictures in the New Testament. We get plenty of times where this sort of judgment conversation includes this idea of whatever things end up there end up being destroyed. This total word. And so you have the position, and sometimes called conditional immortality, of... Yes, there's a purging of everything on earth, and there's a cleansing of sin and brokenness and all these things. And those whose names are written in the book of life, sometimes called the righteous, sometimes called the resurrected, are all in Christ and protected and will be part of this new city where there's a tree of life where they can live forever. And and, and so they have the immortality because of God where God places them, and those that are were not a part of that story who did not reject Christ, whatever it might have been, are thrown into the fire and the verdict on their life, because they don't have the opportunity to eat of the tree of life, there's no immortality to their souls, and ultimately they're destroyed and, and gone forever. And that's a position. And it's a position where you could find some verses to go, okay, I can see that. Doesn't mean you'd agree with it, but, but it's not like Annihilationists are not opening their Bible and genuinely engaging in these texts. Now, um, could the fires possibly be refining? I think that's an important question too. Uh, Because we see language like uh, Malachi 3. Malachi 3 is talking about the end of days as well, this kind of future judgment of God. He describes it, he says, for he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Now we don't tend to gravitate towards that soap image uh, which is super funny, because I, w- I want to see someone standing outside the stadium being like, instead of Turner burn, being like, turn or be scrubbed clean. Um, it would be such a different picture of what we think about what is coming. But we do have a few of these images as well, or 1 Corinthians 3. Now, 1 Corinthians 3 about, is about judgment. It's about the culmination of the days. Now, this text will describe what believers experience, but there's still some kind of like refiner's fire, even for us. And so it talks about the ways we live our lives, the things we build. We could build things with gold or jewels or hay and all this kind of stuff. And it says, each one's work will become manifest for the day, that judgment day in the future. <clears throat> I don't know why this means judgment day, but it does. Um, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive his award. If anyone's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. But uh, only as through fire. So, there's some kind of fire even for us as believers. Now, the, the beauty of this text, and one of the things I'll hit on really at the end, is that what this promises is, that there's things that we do now. There's things that are part of our lives now, ways we, we act and live and do things that continue into the new reality of the future. It's a crazy, it's a crazy statement, but that, that's really what Paul is saying. It's like, look, you, you can build your life now. And there's going to be a judgment day that burns away all the stuff that's unnecessary, but there's going to be stuff that is built that will continue into this new reality, our jobs and things like that. Who knows? Some of you are like, I sure hope my job does not continue into a new reality. But But when your work doesn't feel like toil anymore, you may actually be cool with it. So is Paul speaking metaphorically or not? I don't know. Is it possible? Like, I don't think there's a literal building somewhere that is gold right now that I've built and that there is a literal fire that's going to burn it up. I just kind of watch this happen or anything like that. I think Paul's speaking quite metaphorically. <clears throat> but it comes connected to this earlier language. Is this corrective? Is this corrective language of, of God ultimately parsing out what is true and good and right and dealing with what is evil and wicked and sinful and unjust? This is where we get a position that's called hopeful inclusivism, as it says sometimes people call it total redemption. Now hear me, it's very different than the Catholic theology of purgatory. I want to be very clear about that. Uh, The Catholic position is that when we die right now, we end up in this temporary space that um, is some form of suffering, and those of us here on earth can still pray for that person's salvation, go through the saints to help them out, all this kind of stuff. It's very different than what I'm saying here um, in this position. And this position would say, no, no, no. And, and, and hear me. There's a lot about the current state of what happens when you die that the Bible is amazingly unclear about. I just want to be clear about that, about the unclearness. Um, it has a lot to say about judgment and, and some of what comes after that, but it's very unclear about the current state. And I don't want to base a lot of theology on Jesus's short interaction with a man on the cross. Sure, he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Great, maybe the experience of today is when we die, we fast forward to the future, I don't know. But there's a place for those who died and judgment and any language about hell seems to come after that. So our temporary holding space just doesn't carry a lot of language, there's a lot of verbiage, a lot of description, cool, we can, we can live with that. So, but what this position would say is that that judgment, that, that burning away, the, the sort of casting out of all that is um, people um, who, who, whose names weren't written on the book of life, who didn't believe in Jesus, so whatever criteria you really want to put on that, all those people will um, be outside the presence of God and in so doing also be purged of sin, purged of evil, um, and God will ultimately deal with the deceiver and the one who puts scales upon everyone's eyes. He will cast that one down in Tartarus, whatever language you want to use for where Satan ends up. And those that were sort of purified will now be able to see for the first time. And so, and where this language really gets kind of interesting and where this, to me, becomes, oh, maybe, is how the story ends. Because you end up in the book of Revelation. And there's all sorts of conversation around the afterlife there. But the very final scene of the book is you have a new heaven, a new earth. So earth and heaven are now this one space. And the city of God comes down from heaven and God's people will live in this space with God present and, and be present with God. There's a tree of life, all these kind of things. And outside the city are those whose names weren't written on the tree of life, those whose... robes weren't clean and and the various images for those who are outside of whatever we define as God's family and they're outside the city but the image also goes and the gates of cities is never shut and so it's like John why do you say that like what What are you saying when you tell us that the gates of the city are never shut and those who didn't accept it are all standing outside the gates? Like, is there a possibility? And even one of the trees is for the healing of the nations. It's actually this active word that there's still healing going on in this judgment space and you're kind of stuck there going, huh, maybe, right? You could disagree. You could be like, I don't think that's enough. Okay, but maybe (laughs) there's some language there. And so what do we end up with? Perhaps, and perhaps some of this is our orientation towards the fire to begin with. Like for the Israelites in the desert, the fiery column was safety and guidance and comfort and warmth. To Pharaoh's armies, it was chaos and destruction. The the fires of the furnace for the three Hebrew boys was not torture. But to every soldier who looked in to check see how that fire was going, it was destruction. And perhaps the, the, the consuming fire that is God and, and all of his love and all of his character, to those of us that are in him through Jesus' work, it, it doesn't have the same sort of experience for us. But for those outside, yes, like there is a purging of evil. There is a dealing with evil that probably involves some form of suffering and some form of of hurt and some sort of pain. And being outside of all that is true and good and beautiful can just probably feel that way. And then we're left at the end of the story, just kind of open-ended at that point. But we need God to deal with whatever is wrong. And that's where language around judgment and the end of the story comes. It's, It's God's verdict of dealing with the brokenness of the world to bring it back to what it needs to be. Uh, We get language around wrath. Um, We hear from from this in Paul more than anybody else, particularly in Romans more than anywhere else. Um, Romans 1 talks about the wrath of God being revealed against all ungodliness. So God's wrath actively, not his wrath will be revealed one day in the judgment day. The language is his his wrath is actively being revealed, is actively being shown. And and so, and Paul will go on to describe ungodliness. He lists all sorts of different things, Um, but the language then goes to um, that God gave us over to, to our sins. And so he goes, the wrath is revealed. Here's the ungodliness. And I would argue Paul's going, and here's what that looks like. Here's how it's being revealed. God's letting his people like be destroyed by their own choices. I almost compare it to uh, the, sort of a love relationship with an addict. Um, like if you, like someone who deeply loves someone who's just struggling with making choices that are constantly destroying them. And yes, as a person, you have anger over like, the, the choices that they are making, but, but you deeply love them. And yet, you, like, you, there's only so much help you can bring when they're constantly choosing the thing that can destroy them. And I think Romans is kind of pointing towards that at the beginning as Paul will go on to talk about wrath throughout the book, but this sort of like, this is the wrath of God that I'm letting you do the things that destroy you. Like, and and I'm not going to robotically control you to change that per se. And and so you have that right from the beginning. I think it's the case that Paul is making. And then there's language about wrath to come, but once again, I think that's related to um, what we just talked about, that there is God's legitimate anger against the pollution and sin that's corrupted this world that God wants to deal with. Uh, the last image, uh, and then we'll kind of wrap up here, uh, is a revelation imagery. So uh, we get languages of Lake of Fire, things like that in the book of Revelations. Now, this is going to sound like a total cop-out. I don't mean it to be that way, um, but I don't know how much systematic theology of the... of, the, of the afterlife we should necessarily pull from apocalyptic literature. Um, and what I mean by that is that you have a type of literature in Daniel, you have a type of literature in, 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 in Revelation, uh, and a few other books in the Old Testament that is extremely image and metaphor rich. Um, it's steeped in dualism all the time, this epic battle of good versus evil. It often interacts with other mythologies going on around in the world around it as part of its storytelling. Uh, and it wasn't alone to the Bible. There's other apocalyptic type literature in, in the ancient world. And so you have these things. And now, how much we want to take a book that is constantly debated in interpretation, constantly debated in what the images are representing all the time and go, yes, but it's clear about the afterlife, feels a little funny to me. And, and, and so you have, like, take the book of Daniel, it's like, well, there's these horns and one of those horns was thrown into the fire and, and suddenly we're like, yeah, the horns are metaphoric and they represent uh, the nation and this thing, but the fire is real. It's like, what? Hold on. Like, When do you get to pick when it's metaphoric and poetic and then suddenly literal or not literal? And so I just don't want to build much theology based upon the book of Revelation, if that's okay. Even though I know it just talked about Revelation 21, 22. But let's be cautious. So what can we say and what can we not say? And this is where I want to leave. Um, I want to be real that the first quarter of the church history, up until about 500 AD, the church was varied on their opinions about the afterlife. You read the church fathers and they are all over the map. I confirmed with Graydon, who's our expert on this kind of stuff, um, they are all over the map. Different beliefs, different positions, uh, just different understandings of what really happens after we die. And so that's why you can affirm the first four creeds of the early church and be like, and they didn't say a lot about what exactly happens in the afterlife. Now you could be like, yeah, but it says he descended into Hades, okay, let's deal with that one. Because I know that question came up on Slack. So. The earliest copies we have of the Apostles' Creed don't even mention the descent to the dead, but uh, we eventually get the the phrase, the descent uh, in in inferos. Inferos is really um, comparable. It's not infernos, it's not about fire. Inferos is like what's below inferior. Um, It's really connected to Hades more than anything else. Uh, So uh, it's like the Latin understanding of the place of the dead. And, And all the Apostles' Creed is saying, and he went to where all dead things go. Which we will see the early church actually pick up on this and some of the images they use. Because one of the images that they talk about is connecting Jesus will teach this story. And I'm just, we're just really long today, so second service, just get used to it. Um, Jesus will use this parable of talking about the blind man, uh, talking about the strong man, and he, and he says the stronger man had to come, bind the strong man, plunder all of his goods, and, and it's metaphoric around Jesus. And the early church will take that to mean that Jesus went to where the dead things are, went to the dead place, bound the agent of death, uh, perhaps Satan, uh, though Hades gets personified quite a bit in the early church, binds him and plunders the place of death. Now, what is the, the, the treasures in the place of death? The people, Yeah. So actually, early artwork will actually show Jesus not leaving an empty tomb, Jesus leaving the tomb, and Adam and Eve and other humans like, following behind him. It's this wonderful image. And so you have uh, these, these pictures, and so these creeds aren't necessarily saying much about punishment. They're just talking about Jesus died. He really died. Um, and you even see the Methodists and Lutherans and all that just calling it, he descended to the dead as opposed to descended to hell. So what can we say? Sorry diatribe there, um, that God is in the process of reuniting heaven and earth. I think we could say that, and I'll talk about that a little bit more in a second. One day Jesus will return, the dead will be raised, all of the dead, and, and those with their names in the book of life, those that are called the righteous, those whose robes have been cleaned, and those that, whose names aren't in that. And there will be judgment against all wickedness and all sin and all death in the world. And Jesus has done something about that, but, but we'll, we'll continue as we go. And ultimately, the agent of death, Satan, will be destroyed. That's the finale to the story. We will enter into an age of a new heaven and new earth and a place totally purged of evil. And those with their names on the book of life will be in this new heaven city, this new Jerusalem with God. And those those whose names were not will be outside the city in some form of punishment. And until then, God is in the process of reconciling all things through the expansion of his kingdom accomplished by the Holy Spirit and the human beings living out uh, his teaching of the kingdom in the world and calling people to repent. That's what we can say definitively. And what happens to those whose names weren't written in the book of life? You have options. I don't think you, you could sit there and go, clearly it's this. I think at some point we gotta go, you know what, I think I'm in this camp, but I can also see that Scripture leaves open-ended some other options. And if that's frustrating to you, sorry. <laughs> but there's things that Scripture sometimes just doesn't go clearly as one thing. And I think the early church knew that I think Augustine came along, and Augustine was not interested in gray areas very much. He was very much a black and white theologian, uh, and the church picked up on a lot of the Western Latin movement, um, and Augustine got to define a lot of theology for the church, and we've inherited a ton of it, good and bad. And so, um, at some point, it's like, okay, but is that true? And that's what I just want to do as we go through this. Uh, There's three books I would recommend in three of these camps. Uh, The first one, oh, where'd it go? There we go. Uh, hell uh, under fire. It's a bunch of authors uh, takes the eternal conscious torment uh, position. Uh, they do a wonderful job tackling a number of those verses. Uh, the fire that con- uh, the, the fire that consumes uh, by Fudge, which is an unfortunate last name, uh, but he is um, quite an expert on annihilationism. Uh, he's, it's like the tome, the modern tome of, of on that topic. And then lastly, uh, her gates will uh, never be shut. As I talked about, that's one of the images, to, to be a hopeful inclusivist that perhaps there can be a redemption in the day. That when God says that his mercy ultimately triumphs over judgment, that, that we are hopeful that that is true even for those that never accept it. And so, um, yeah, his position is wonderful to read about. He's, he's a pretty smart guy. So feel free to read more if you want. Now, why this matters. Because at some point, it's like, well, what does it matter? What does it matter what position I take? And here's, here's why it matters, because I think it matters to the story we tell and the reality we think we live in. Because the gospel I received um, through a lot of my theological development was I'm a sinner, God's wrath is upon me. The wrath is a judgment that occurs after I die. And it's like a YouTube channel of everything I've ever done wrong in my life that God replays back to me. And if I have not accepted Christ, then I'm damned to hell for all eternity. Now, if that process was interrupted at some point during my lifetime, someone shares the gospel with me, and I pray the sinner's prayer, whatever it is, and ask Jesus into my heart, and then do things like be baptized and go to church, read my Bible, then on the day of judgment, I am welcome to heaven forever and worship God forever and ever and ever. And the invitation is make a decision and accept Jesus as your personal savior, right? And that is a lot of what people present as that is the gospel. Now, if we read the Bible fully through, is that where we end up? Is that, is that what we see? Because what does the Bible start with? It starts with God created the heavens and the earth. And we see all of this in one place, right? We see God walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. We see um, this this heaven space and earth space all being sort of this, this one space where God and his people dwell fully together. And God gives them a job. He, he's, he's king over everything, but he gives them a job, like this royal job, to go expand the reign of God to the ends of the earth. He gives them that job. He, he wants to participate. He always wants to, like be in a partnership with his creation now it goes wrong and god's will is no longer done to the ends of the worth worth but other wills end up in there because of sin because of destruction and the world starts being polluted and and and, and affected by this genesis 3 through 11 is a showcase of this massive rupture between heaven and earth and creation itself becomes enslaved to all sorts of powers that are unleashed by human rebellion now, when sin enters the world, it pollutes. And some of the language that we should really focus on that, that we don't emphasize enough is that it, it, it pollutes and destroys. It creates chaos. That's what sin does. And it's waged. The final payout of that is death. That's also why death enters in. That's the finale to where sin goes. And so I would argue from Paul's language that that's what wrath is. Not this arbitrary fickleness of God against certain rules. But what happens when sin enters the world, and and, and it does not seem to be this extrinsic thing coming from God, but sin is primarily just the failure of humans to live out their original vocation and design. And we've failed. All of us in Adam have failed, and we call it sin. Now, God constantly chooses partners in this process. He he goes to Abraham and says, partner with me. This is what we're going to do. And he goes, Israel, partner with me. You're going to be this certain kind of nation. I'm going to ultimately bring about my redemption through this partnership, through this story. It's what I'm calling you into, to go be these certain kind of people in the world, to restore what was broken, to, to be a nation of a certain kind of shalom and peace back on earth. And God even comes closer, right? He's like, build me a house and I'll come and dwell with you guys. And they build the tabernacle. And they build the temple. And God is constantly in the state of getting closer. But yet Israel constantly fails to live under the rule and reign of King Yahweh to the ends of the earth. They struggle to do it. So to recap, Old Testament. Creation of heaven and earth. Rupture of heaven and earth. And hell isn't mentioned yet in the story. Actually, you won't find anywhere that heaven and hell are actually mentioned in the same sentence. If you were to read the Old Testament through... And you'd end in Malachi or Chronicles if you're a Jew. You don't end with going, how is God going to save people from hell? That's not how the story feels like it ends. It almost feels like a vocational question as you wrap up the Old Testament. How is God going to rescue humanity from the sin and death that has polluted it now that his chosen agents in Israel have failed at their calling? That's what we're left with. And Jesus comes, shows up, says, repent. Repent. The kingdom is at hand or near. It's actually a very spatial word, not a time word. It's, it's this, the kingdom has come close to you. It's like right in front of you. And that's the story since Genesis 3, right? Created the separation. God goes, okay, I'm coming closer. I'm coming a little closer in the tabernacle, a little closer maybe in the temple. And then he comes. He walks. He tabernacles in Jesus, as John would say. And Jesus does what we cannot do and in his death condemns the old creation, the old order. He takes on sin and all of its polluting effects into the world and starts purging things, cleansing things. Even cleanses the heavenly temple, according to Hebrews, which is a weird thing to think about, to prepare for something new. And he comes out of the grave, having lived out the terrible, of binding the strong man, plundering his goods, He has victory over the old order and he ushers in this new age, this new eternal, this new reality. His resurrection is the beginning of the new creation, as Paul will state, the first fruits of this future reality and heaven and earth are reuniting again because that's the final part of the story. There's a new heaven and new earth, but it's not the word neos, which means like a whole brand new thing. It is the word kinos, which is a new addition. It's like the next addition of what heaven and earth are going to be. Jesus is ushering in. He's not making all things new. He's making, or he's not making all new things. He's making all things new. That's very distinct. The hope of scripture is not to get people out of hell. The hope of scripture is new creation. And the kingdom is not just drawing near, but being reunited, heaven and earth in its fullness. That's the story we tell. God sends his spirit into cleansed human beings, which was one of the reasons why Jesus had to die, was to actually buy his blood, cleanse us. Spirit would come, fill us in the process continue to draw us towards that reality, that cosmic project of God reconciling all things to himself. And in the world, there's those who are in Adam, where everything is old. There's ways of life that are in Adam. And then there's a the world that is in Christ. In Adam is polluted space of sin and death. In Christ is purified space. We call it resurrection, spirit, a new creation, and forgiveness of sins the temple space Christ made for us. In Adam, the space is called flesh and death and sin and powers and principalities, this present age. And the verdict God has over the the in Christ space is eternal life. And the verdict that he has over the in Adam space is perishing. That's why he says the world in its present form is perishing. The old order has perished. And the momentum of everything in Adam is to be perishing, to be lost, to be self-consumed, to pass away. The wrath is the whole air that the in-Adam community breathes, and life is the whole air, forgiveness of sins, that the verdict of this community. And that should change everything, right? I know I have to wrap up. Our God is not, our goal is not to save people from hell. You know what book I didn't bring up at all today? The book of Acts, right? Didn't come up at all. You know why? Because the book of Acts just doesn't really talk about hell and punishment and anything like that. The book we have for the evangelism of the church does not talk about everything we talked about today. Because I think we get so caught up in we need to make sure we save people from hell that we forget the New Testament never gives us a motivation to go and share the gospel. Rather than to go, hey, there's a new king and a new world order, and there's all the ways the old world order is just a mess, and it's destructive, and it's death, and it's all these things. And we go into the world going, hey, there is this new world order, and your reality could be hell, your reality could be all this sort of suffering, all these sort of things, all this sort of mess that you've created for yourself. And God, as the new king, is inviting us into something more tremendous than anything you're experiencing here, and he's calling us to live into this new reality. And and we step into that. That's what we invite people into. And we experience that now. Eternal life is now. That's what John would say. It's for us right now. The future age has broken into the present age. And we experience that in our lives now. And it affects everything about how we live our lives. Right? So we we care about the inbreaking of the kingdom. We are agents of the inbreaking of the kingdom. That's why we care about justice. say justice isn't a gospel issue is to reduce the gospel to the smallest version of that. But the good news is about a king and his kingdom inbreaking into this world, and we are the agents of it. Yes, we care about justice. We care about those who are living on the margins. We care about holy living with our bodies. We, we care about engaging um, uh, with creation care and earth care. We, we care about these spaces and um, the inbreak in the kingdom, so we go to the places where that is not proclaimed and let them know that there's good news of a king who reigns, who has defeated all the mess of sin and death for us. That's what we get to do. And then one day, that king is going to come and purge everything. And ultimately, if, if we are in him, there's a certain kind of purging that just probably won't feel. It, it's like we're already choosing to image our, our, our king, and, and so we're not going to experience the purge like, like those who have chosen to reject that. And that's what we're inviting people into. I have to stop. And so, but that's why it matters, because I think we get so caught up in a story that is, it's like, um, what's the Austin Powers joke? The, the, the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable. Um, that we emphasize this thing that scripture just does not spend time emphasizing. And it causes us to miss out on what is actually the story that we are all invited into. And I know in that last section, probably I introduced a whole lot of other concepts where you're like, well, I need to know more about that. Great, we'll, t- we'll keep talking about it. But for us to know, that changes everything. It should change how we go to work. It should change how we view non believers and and how we think about evangelism. It should change just about everything about our lives to go, oh, we are participants in a future age reality of the universe. And we get to do some of that now? Amazing. We are agents of peace and shalom to a world that is suffering and broken and perishing. It's amazing. All right, let's get to this table. So, as I said, you, you could take and disagree with everything I said today. Cool. It's all right. And, and we are a church where even the next week, another elder can come up here and go, ah, I don't agree with Chris on that. Great. I hope you're okay with that. Um, as I said, like, I hope we're a place to go. And, and maybe my challenge for some of you is that, like, you come in here and be like, no, hell is this one thing, and it has to be this. I'm going, okay, maybe scripture, maybe I still have my position, but maybe scripture offers some, some leniency where I can have brothers and sisters who see some of those texts a little differently. But let's make sure we're emphasizing still what is the true story, the right story that Scripture emphasizes for us.